Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Alex McCarran. He's a filmmaker making television and online videos, but since lockdown, he started the Escape from Lockdown podcast, where he talks to writers, thinkers, and scientists from a lockdown perspective. So, Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. Uh, so it's good to be here. We met, I think, Alex, um, unless I'm mistaken, in uh, was it at the Edinburgh Fringe last year? It was at the Edinburgh Fringe, and I I recognised your voice in the car park, and I <laughs> Hello. couldn't quite place it. <laughs> I, I've never been to that car park. <laughs> Honest, Your Honour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just heard this. I heard this moaning. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm responsible for that. I'm always moaning. Yeah. No, I heard this a mixture of uh, stock market commentary and right wing reactionary invective, and I thought, oh, that sounds yeah. familiar. That does, um, sound like, that does sound like you've got me banged to rights. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so, so I came up and introduced myself, and then um, we watched a great show, which was. It was one of those talk shows that Miriam Somerset Webb was hosting, or was it? Was it Dominic's Bar? I think. Of the it, I think it might have been. Do- well, it could have been both, but I, I remember certainly enjoying Dominic's presentation about the history of the Fringe. Yes, yes, and that now exists in documentary form. Uh, so Dominic and I went up to Edinburgh in July when we knew that it wouldn't be happening, mm. and we decided just. Because I thought it was such a great story, I thought, well, let's you know, let's try and make it into a into a doc. Uh, you know, it, w- it wouldn't have been possible when the festival was on. So it was, it was terrific fun, and we got um, some quite big names as well uh, to do interviews for it, like uh, Al Murray and Jimmy Carr, uh, Henning Vern, Shazia Mirza. So we all interviewed them back in London, and then went around Edinburgh and uh, went and um, filmed this great thing, which. Um, hopefully we'll definitely see the light of day. It's just a question of finishing the damn thing off, mm. uh, you know, because it's, a, you know, producing a, a television documentary and then more importantly, getting someone to show it is it's a real battle. But I think, you know, we, we, we will get there. It just depends slightly on, you know, who will take it. And ultimately that, that has a bearing on what form it will take. We'll, I think we'll come back to the, the the state of play in media and live theatre and all that kind of stuff. But first, uh, we should also say you, you've you've begun your own podcast, haven't you? Escape from lockdown. Yes, and Tim, you were I think my first guest. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. Oh, a pleasure pleasure to be on. Yeah. So basically, I I began it because I was just so completely shocked at what was going on. And I've always loved the medium of podcasts, yours being one that I do enjoy, even though I don't really understand much of the, the finance stuff. Yeah, neither do we. <laughs> that seems to be a, a commonality. And yeah, and then I just decided to, I thought, well, I've got, I've got the audio kit. So why don't I just get started making it happen? Uh, and after I played yours to somebody, uh, it turned out they were, it's a very, very close friend of mine. Mm. And it turned out that, so I said, uh, you know, have a look at this podcast. Look what I've done. Haha, <laughs> aren't I great? And she said, oh, my uncle will love that. I said, well, who's your uncle? He, oh, he's Dr. John Lee. 
Oh. And I thought, oh, brilliant. <laughs> uh, can I get his details? So then John came on and that one really blew up and it went all around the mm. world. And then I, I genuinely didn't know whether it would, uh, where, how long I would carry on for. I thought I'd finish it. You know, I thought, oh, you know, we'll be out of this in, in six weeks, nine weeks. Where, you know, I, I, and even in the summer for, oh, you know, I'll have to wind this down or turn it into a more general one because, um, you know, it won't be relevant anymore because we'll have moved on. And, we, we, you know, we can't escape from the lockdown. No matter what we do, it keeps us in there. It's, it's horrendous. And so it's awful that I have to keep making it. But I have to because I'm sort of I'm driven to now. So, for the, of the guests that you've had on, who has been the most um, convinced, given the most convincing arguments uh, for lockdown that you can basically summarise? I had Mike Yeadon on, uh, who has sort of come out of nowhere in the last couple of months. Who's sort of very well-known immunologist and um well no he's not sorry he's not really well known he's very experienced and he was quietly had his career and then he was so shocked at what was happening he had to come up and that's been you know that's tore open the the scientific arguments um one of my personal favorites is uh claire wills which is episode 15 on july 30th and she is a this probate lawyer and so she deals with end of life care, uh, wills, that kind of, kind of old, old person stuff. And she's an in- incredible woman. And she's just been driven to, you know, distraction by this because uh, she has, I think she said on the show, she had 1,500 clients. And normally she'd expect about eight a year to die. And actually, she's been losing two a week. And she knows that this they're not dying of COVID. You know, up, upon occasion, it's COVID that's being put on the death certificates. But a lot of them are dying because effectively they've been denied care. A lot of them have been taken out of hospitals when they should have been in hospital because that's what the fucking thing is there for. Uh, a lot of them have been given do not return to hospital orders or do not resuscitate orders, sometimes without their knowledge. And what what's actually occurred, well... The government, Matt Hancock, will quote as don't kill granny in their cack handed panic and terror. Uh, they've committed a what a geriatricide, I don't know if that's the term. And Claire very beautifully and, and movingly spoke about this. Uh, and it is it you could tell it really affects her personally. And she, I think, her, her father died. A uh, little bit young, and 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 that's the reason she went into what she was doing. It was so that she could provide the care and the dignity that our elderly deserve. And the fact that that's being taken away from them, ostensibly for their own uh, benefit, I think is is disgusting. So I think what's ha- and that just goes on to confirm. A lot of what she said was the kind of on on the ground confirmation of what Dr. John Lee told me months before. Uh, so that those two, either you know, they they really stand out. Another one that's a big one for me was uh, Dr. Hugh Wilburn, who was 
uh, a long-time collaborator with Paul McKenna. So he he's like a psychotherapist and hypnotist, but he also worked on Paul McKenna's books, like sort of how to lose weight, how to sleep, and all that kind of stuff. I think he was involved in some of the performance stuff as well. Um, and he he has this really interesting theory that we're caught in the world is caught in a kind of Festinger effect. Now, Festinger was uh, a sociologist from the 50s who made this inc- wrote this incredible book called When Prophecies Fail, where he looked around, uh, he looked at uh, millenarial cults. And what he found was when uh, these cults would set a date for the apocalypse uh, and that date didn't come, Rather than uh, realizing that they'd made a mistake and, and the world wasn't going to end, they doubled down and they just pushed the date slightly further into the future. And what's happened is, um, just to take Britain alone, we've been trapped in a sort of triple Venn diagram of Festinger effect events. So uh, the earliest and, and number one one is is climate change. Now that. Uh, is a very interesting thing because now the internet's been around and been more or less ubiquitous for sort of 20, 25 years. We can actually go and look back at uh, newspaper articles about, you know, what, what they said would happen. And you, it's all you a load know, of cobblers. It's all a load of bollocks. So effectively, we were told the Arctic would be ice free by now. Uh, billions would be, you know, millions would be dead by now. Uh, you know, the Sahara would have been annihilated. You know, Africa would be an arid dust bowl. I mean, it's the opposite. I mean, Africa is is doing incredibly well in terms of growth, um, or, or was until now, until this year. Uh, the the second one is, is Brexit. Now that also has uh, a very interesting, a very solid date. It's a it's a predictive thing. So all these predictions that you know we will leave, and then suddenly children won't be able to afford food or shoes on their feet, and the economy will collapse. None of that turned out to be true. As we know, as you know, because I'm a, I am a long time listener, I don't need to lecture you on this of all things. And the third one is the uh, COVID nineteen. So again, it swept through the world. People were very scared of it, sort of February, March, and we were told if you do not do this, there will be un- unimaginable death, destruction. Mm. You know, the horse of the apocalypse will come, and they will bury us in the ground and stamp on our graves, and that'll be it. And the fact of the matter is that has not happened anywhere. You know, what we've seen in, in the worst affected countries is maybe like a doubling of a, of a severe flu season. Uh, so, well, I mean, the, the flu season in 1990,000 90, in the UK was slightly worse. In 1999, it was slightly worse. I don't remember locking up then. In Germany, the... 2017-18 flu season was three times as bad as the current COVID season. And you can actually see how these predictions have manifested themselves in the terms of sweet in terms of Sweden, obviously, which didn't really lock down. And their daily deaths are still stuck at sort of zero and one or two, maybe. Selfish and bastards. So I mean, God, they have all these, they're tall and pretty and thin and <laughs> ABBA. And they've given us so many wonderful things. And yeah, and they still just won't die. And this is what's very interesting is it's produced a, a 
different kind of arguments. So do you remember early on in the pandemic, we were told, uh, you know, if if the Swedish, the Swedes are basically committing suicide or, or kind of genocide on their nation, it's, it's horrendous, they're just murdering, you know, they're basically inviting mass death into Stockholm and Melmo and Uppsala and all the rest of it. Now, the argument is that, oh, ugh, you know, we couldn't possibly be like Sweden. The Swedes are exequious and thin and tall, and they don't even hug each other, and they completely obey what the government's telling because it's a very communitarian society, whereas in Britain, we're just a bunch of barbarian arsehole idiots sitting around eating chips and watching daytime television. We couldn't possibly survive the way the Swedes have because we're an inferior race of people. We are a pathetic nation, and maybe we deserve to die, you know, taking it a bit far. But that's the reality of it. And so I've, I've really gone off piece here, but it's a very interesting situation where you have all three of these things, Brexit, uh, climate change, and COVID-19. Very much, the same people, in many cases, are involved in terrorizing us about these things. And all three of them have caused immense economic damage. Not the things themselves, I mean, but the reaction to them. Immense political damage. Uh, so Brexit has com- really severely undermined the relationship between the the citizen and the democracy, the citizen and the state. Uh, it's affected. There's, there's been free speech issues. Um, the way that the electoral commission, for instance, has completely uh, bastardized itself. Uh, it's very, the way it went over after Darren Grimes. And Darren Grimes is just one of the stories. They they pursued the funders of the various Brexit campaigns as well just wiping out this idea that we have a fair democracy. Climate change, the amount of money that's wasted, the amount of people that are sort of going to not live the potential lives that they could do because of this complete waste of opportunity cost by concentrating on something that really isn't such a problem. And now the big granddaddy of COVID-19, where we've basically annihilated the world uh, for nothing. And this is going to go down as a great lost year. And it's very personal to me because my son was born on December 23rd. Uh, you know, so this is his year is of it, life. Is it his fault? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he was like Damien. He was, he was patient yeah. zero. Yeah, yeah. There was um, something very goat-like about when he came out and the little frisson of evil. no he can't talk yet but yeah but to go back to it yeah this was going to be my son's first year of life uh i had all these wonderful jobs lined up and it's all it was all taken away you know and and now i was very concerned a bit less so now with the news of the vaccine but we can talk about that as well sure all that glitters is not gold is what i have to say um but this idea that he won't be able to live the life, have the childhood that he should. And from my selfish point of view, I feel like, you know, I, I, I wanted to sort of, I wanted to make more money than my father, the way that, you know, my father made more than his and his made more than his, you know, this sure. idea of we're all, the human betterment increases with every mm. generation. I graduated directly into the, financial crash 2008 and now you know in my early 30s i've got this to deal with i think what what's happened and what, 
why have idiots taken this away from me for basically a problem that isn't as bad as they're saying and nothing they do can ultimately change any of it? So the question I, I've put to probably each of the last half dozen guests we've had on is cock up or conspiracy? Oh, it's very much of both. I hope that's not a cop out. No, not at all. But um, I mean, one of, one of the reasons this is problematic for me is that we'll never know. Um, we'll never know the exact terms. The, the, the book that I would cite, and I think I've mentioned it before, is called The Price of Panic, which I bought a, a week or so ago. Um, and that's written by three PhD level guys in the States. And long and short of it, on their analysis, is that, yeah, the end of 2019, a new virus, question, brackets, question mark, brackets, emerges in China. And then for a period, it's like, yeah, big whoop. And it's not really reported at all in the, the Western media. And then if you buy Michael Sanger's argument, China then melodram melodramatizes the whole thing. They really hype it up and they have ridiculous videos appearing on social media of people just dropping down dead in the street. And there's another particularly amusing one of a guy being, you know, basically being uh, detained by the by the fuzz, and that's always painful, as we know. Um, held by the fuzz, Della uh, I'm here all day, guys. I can you know, tough crowd, um, and uh, and they put a butterfly net over him and then cart him into a car. It's just you know, completely ridiculous stuff, completely ridiculous footage. And then the, the first inklings of you know, let's say you know, concern start to appear. And then when it hits, I think it was North Italy was the first mm. place that the West really became aware of it because it's like close to home. Then, you know, concerns about, you know, people dying and basically corpses piling up in, 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 in hospitals. And if you buy the Sanger argument or even part by the Sanger argument, then Chinese, Chinese Communist Party officials are parachuted in and they say, you know what you should do? You should lock down really severely. That's what you should do. And because they'd done that in China, we, the people in the West said, well, they did it, so maybe they, they know what they're doing. So by the time it hit the UK, we are going, well, China's locked down, Italy's locked down, Spain's locked down, maybe we should lock down too. In other words, it was in, in Sanger's uh, take on this, his suggestion, hypothesis, you know, we got suckered by Chinese psyops. Yeah, I mean, did I, you have I, any? Do you have any sympathy for that view? I completely agree with Michael. He's yeah. been on my podcast as well, and I think he is one of the most important researchers in the world today. Actually, because I would, I would say all these people are basically, you know, whistleblowers. Yeah, because the, because the mainstream media is not doing its effing job. No, the mainstream media isn't, and and it's it's disgrace. They've that's a whole other thing to talk about how they've disgraced themselves. But this is a crime scene that we've stumbled upon. There's all this evidence. And the people the, the media willfully blind to what's going on. I mean the only the but, only thing I would say I, in their defense, and it is the only thing I'll say in their defense, is there's also suggestions that Ofcom basically laid the law down back in March or April saying, guys, if you don't tow the party line here, we'll yank your license. So I, I yeah, can at least accept that's... that you know a few people have had second thoughts about being overly critical because they don't want to lose their job. It's true, but I, I also and we know think I think we know there's something similar has been going that. on in the NHS because people have been told you know, you're not allowed to talk about this or you're not allowed to give a certain view on this. So the the suspicion of basically um, censure and uh, 
uh, a real squashing of free speech. It's quite a live one. Oh, it, I think it's got worse than it has for many years. Um, I think that off, Ofcom definitely have made those guidelines. They they don't want the anybody to, you know, uh, go against uh, government or WHO but WH advice. advice itself is, has been contradictory and, cha- and nonsensical. Yeah. Oh, it's completely changed all over the shop, and it and it, it's 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 contradictory now within it. You know, you have Dave Nabarro, who was uh, one of the sort of major WHO ambassadors, saying, "Don't lock down. This is not a good thing. Do not do this." And then the next day, Tedros, the head heavily of the politically WHO, conflicted. Also, they were up against each other for the leadership of the WHO, by the way. And Tedros was the Chinese supported candidate. Uh, but Tedros said, "Yeah, no, you have to lock down. That's that's what we do. Lockdown, lockdowns, love. You know, everybody should lock down. And it's um, it it's terrifying that yeah, we have this unmitigated disaster in the form of China. We definitely have this smoking gun in terms of the disinformation that they've been pushing on every step of the way, right? From from the videos of people falling over in the street, from an incredible uh tr- troll." campaign for using fake Twitter and fake Facebook accounts, you know, coming from a country banned. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the New York Times, I think, uh, reported that the Twitter banned 178,000 Twitter accounts that were linked to the Chinese Communist Party, and they've barely even cracked the surface. And the, the terrible thing is there is this complete willingness amongst uh, the citizenry in, in the West to buy into this because I think of this profound um, sort of tire, tiredness and, and cynicism of our own culture and a belief that we're somehow the most corrupt society that the world has ever there's a, created. There's a big problem on the left in the, and this is something I think as far back as Orwell, Orwell was was talking about it, which is the big problem with the left in this country is it hates this country. It would it would rather be anything but this country. True, I, I think he wrote that the intelligentsia would they'd be more happy to be seen stealing from a poor box than standing for God save the king. Just to just to swing to the other side with regard to all of this, um, it is worth pointing out though that this is a real disease and it is bad. It's not it's not like it is just flu. It is for some people. It is it is a terrible disease, and there are also some long term effects that that can be sustained by people, like things like um, complete loss of of sense of smell. That we're not sure whether those things will come back, and there there are people who are are fighting with other problems, even younger people. So although there is a um an overreaction and we we can say that there has been and like you say the idea that because they've taken a form of of action and they they just don't don't want to move away from that and even if the evidence points to it not being as bad as they think they're still going down the same route we we should also point out that saying that it's trying to trivialize it and I'm not saying you are I'm just just want to give some balance to that there is it is a real disease. It's not like a made-up thing. It's not a completely made-up, um, uh, you know, disease that doesn't really exist. And we everybody was just conned into 
into um, into locking down and doing the wrong thing. Yes, I I think it's important to stress that as well, in part because the smear is attached to the lockdown skeptic side of the argument that we are somehow COVID deniers. And you were completely right. It is a very nasty disease. It spread through the world very, very quickly. Um, I don't think it's... I actually think the pandemic has largely passed anyway. I I think that what we're seeing now is an artifact of very unreliable PCR testing. But what I would say specifically to that argument is that I, I would draw an analogy with, for instance, the people who were saying that we should intervene in Syria in the last uh, three or four years, uh, where various horrible things were going on there. And the argument was often applied, we have to do something. What about Zimbabwe? Why don't we do something there? Yeah, we have to do something. And you think... I, oh, think, I think we should intervene yeah, in the Isle well, of Wight. I don't know what's going on there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not much. <laughs> not much, really. I was trying to think of a funny answer based Even on less the famous now. thing they do. And, we, yeah, should intervene. we should, we should intervene to prevent them getting CFAX. Yeah, <laughs> the inter- that was the internet of its day. <laughs> um, but yeah, if, to sort of, if I if I may labour the point a bit, um, when when presented with this argument, it's often favoured by people like, like Dan Hodges, for instance. You know that we oh, what could, we can't just we can't just do nothing. Anything? Yeah, yeah, we we can totally do that. You know what what did the West do when the Soviet Union invaded Hungary in nineteen fifty six? They did nothing because they knew that the alternative uh, of of intervening would be orders of magnitude worse than the original problem. The same thing with Syria. I mean, does anybody really believe now that if we'd have gone in, waded into this kind of ethnic, multi-creed conflict four years ago, that we would be out and it would be okay? And that there wouldn't have been horrible things happening the whole time. No, none of us believe that. And so it's what I call, and it's a big problem of the modern West, it's called something must be doneism. And we've got a really big case, we've got a really bad case of something must be doneitis. And it's the law of unintended consequences as well. I mean, we, it's all well and good just counting one disease, but it, we, we don't count the others and we don't count the other human costs of everything else that's going on. Part of the response by the government has been to throw money at the problem. One of the most interesting things that came out from the market's point of view yesterday, following the election, following the announcement of the vaccine, was a massive jump in government bond yields. And that says that it's going to cost a lot more for the government to print money. And the market may be finally responding to that. You know, this, let's just, let's just take this course of action and print money um, is, is, is just an, a completely unsustainable state of affairs. And if money, w- the cost of money wasn't virtually at zero, then I think they would be thinking twice about doing this. And in any case, the counter, the counter argument of putting the people who are vulnerable under proper care, like in the, what you mentioned at the top of the show, Alex, about, um, you know, I think you said her name, Carol, and and, and it's Claire. The, Claire, oh, it's Claire was it? Sorry, Claire. Yeah. Uh, about Claire and her, um, her, on the ground experience of of patients dying, is 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 absolutely shocking. I mean, that really is absolutely shocking. Considering we are being told to do all of this, 
because the older people are vulnerable. And if you were to have put every single old person or vulnerable person in the Savoy with an expense account to spend as much money as they want and gave them round-the-clock care, it would have probably been a lot cheaper than what they've done in terms of ruining businesses. So none of it makes any sense. No, it's... Uh, one of my guests, uh, Andrew Lidico, had the really interesting proposal, which he called the bubble. But the bubble is not a physical bubble. It's it's like a sort of state of being where uh, it has its own food distribution. It might even have its own shops. And to go in, it takes you two weeks of isolation and you're tested regularly when you're in the bubble. And that way, the people within the bubble who are sort of basically people in need of care and caregivers can live as some sense of a normal life and there would at least be a process for uh relatives to see uh their um the people you know their elderly their elderly relatives and this has been just rejected out of hand in the form of this idea of focus protection because I think I genuinely think that the scientists and the politicians are just quite emotionally invested in the course of action that they've done. And, you know, when it comes to something like the bubble, which I think is a fairly good idea, I, I probably don't think it's needed anymore because, I, as I said, I genuinely think the pandemic has largely passed. But at the time, could have been useful. Uh, but the reality is that for the 300 billion quid or whatever that we've borrowed, you know, would it, really have been beyond our means to create the bubble you know would would that have cost more really no especially when you count all the all the wealth that's been lost to the economy but by by preventing people from working so to, to that point the point about the lost wealth the i don't know if you're familiar with the broken windows fallacy um I've I've heard of the broken windows police. No, this theory. is a separate it's thing. A... So I know the broken windows theory, which oh, is right. that you basically do. You, 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 I'll move on. Um, the broken windows fallacy is basically coined by a French economist, Frederick Bastiat, and that he, the premise is that the thought idea is that you have um, there's a, a kid puts a brick through a window in France, uh, uh, you know, a baker shop, and pretty soon mm -hmm. a crowd. It's, it's, it's an old story. Um, crowd come around, crowd come around together, and people are saying, oh, that's awful, isn't it? Look at that smashed glass. And someone in the crowd pipes up, yeah, but think about it this way. Now we're going to have to, the, 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 that guy's going to have to get a glazier in to fix the glass. Shopkeeper will give him some money, and that money can then circulate in the economy. It'll be great. We should break more windows. And mm. um, there's a kind of perverse childish logic to it, but the, the bottom line is that, and it's, it's the title of the essay, it's a ce qu'on peut voir, ce qu'on ne peut pas voir, which is that which is seen and that which is unseen. So that which is seen yeah. is the broken glass and the money paid by the, by the butcher or baker or whatever it is to the glazier, okay? What is not mm -hmm. seen yeah. is what that guy could have done with the money if he hadn't had to give it to the glazier in the first place. So in other words, this is this, is this myth that basically whatever government does, it's always great because firstly, there's, we're all kind of immunized from it because there's this myth of government money, whereas in reality, governments never have any money. It's taxpayers' money we're talking about, but it's politely called government money, as if like this is some magic money tree, which now, now apparently there is. Um, mm -hmm. But what, what, what is not being registered, or is not being sufficiently registered in all this mess, is that which is unseen. And that which is unseen includes, firstly, all the things that money now can't be spent on, because it's already been spent on nonsense. Yeah. 
and B, what's you know what can't be seen is also the the the, the life effects on all those poor unfortunates who've been affected, suicides, death from other conditions, missed cancer screenings, you know, you name it. Um, and yes. I think you may be underestimating. I think that the figure may be even more than three hundred billion. So we're talking an absolutely monstrous amount of money that's been wasted on this. The concern I have, and I'm interested in if you share it. The concern I have is because the politicians who are responsible for this and the guys at Sage, some of whom I suspect have deeply political motivations for effectively trying to bring down the state or certainly bring down the economy because they, let's say, have a left, yeah. a, a markedly left-leaning attitude towards towards politics. My concern is that the politicians involved, and we all know who they are, are, mm. are well aware that if if they were ever if it were ever to get out what the truth actually is, in other words, what we're discussing here gets amongst a wider audience of discourse, they will be immediately removed from office, and they will never see you know anything close to government again. And as a result, they can never ever ever do anything other than double down and kick this into the long grass. But the problem there is that I believe that the truth is already well, so out do I. there. You know, so and but people just don't want to believe because it's it. because it's too outrageous to believe. Yeah, yeah, and people they can't possibly concede that we've done all this for nothing, and we have. We've done all this for nothing. We have. I don't think beyond the hand washing campaign, I really struggle to see that we've saved a single life from any of this, and we've we've cost plenty. I think. I also would say that I think the 43, 44,000 figure of COVID deaths, I think half of them at least have been caused by the lockdown itself. But it's as if at every stage of this, the government and its agencies have done everything they can to confuse things, to muddy the waters, to lie, um, and, and basically make oh, yeah. it impossible to conduct a forensic audit post hoc. Oh yeah, completely. I mean, we only need to look at the justification giving for the lockdown itself. Three weeks, three weeks Either. to squash the sombrero to save the NHS. Yeah, three weeks to save it. Now, now it's turned into indefinite suppression. There, there seems to be a very strong desire amongst certain people to keep the lockdown going. I think there's a kind of lockdownism. Well, I'd say that's a, that's akin that's akin to a death it. cult. It's just it's just other people yeah. who are doing the dying. Oh yeah, completely. And you know, the Piers Morgans and whatever, and journalism in general has seen itself do quite well. Oh, although I hear the Guardian has done quite. Oh badly, no, not but, the Guardian. You know, yeah. Oh no. How awful! But the the Telegraph and the Spectator spiked. I know some people there. They 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 they're seeing um you know really good uh, clicks and views. And, and Toby and Young, Toby Young at Lockdown Skeptics is also playing a bit of a blinder. I would say that Toby Young uh, is the man of the year, uh, no question, because Lockdown Skeptics has been a real find for me. Uh, I, I'm all, I love it. When, whenever the update comes up, it's just a great way to spend the next sort of 20 minutes and half an hour. Alex, it's we, such we, a great source. We've got a, an international audience who might not know who he is. Could you just tell us a bit about him and what he's done? Oh, of course. So Toby Young's a British journalist uh, who's been kicking around the scene for sort of 25, 30 years. Uh, in, um, in America, people might know him from uh, the book and then subsequent film starring Simon Pegg as Toby, How to Lose Friends and Alienate People. And uh, it sh- sh- details his torrid time uh, working in Vanity Fair in the 90s. 
uh, and he's sort of been kicking around um, uh, sort of journalism, and then he moved into education in the UK, uh, and then he was famously uh, cancelled because old tweets of his were dug up when he was appointed to a minor government body. Uh, looking after university. I think he coined the phrase offence architecture, didn't he? Offence architects. Archaeology. Archaeology. Yeah, because people were digging through stuff that he'd written, you know, 10, 15 years before. Uh, So Toby, yeah, he'd been cancelled. He'd sort of lost everything. And now he, as I said, man of the year, because aside from starting up lockdownskeptics.org, which if you're listening to this podcast and you're not reading it, I don't know what's going on. Shame you on you. Read that, read Shame that on update you. Boo. it's great. It's, uh, it's just a wonderful aggregator for everything that's going on, every new paper, every interesting article, podcast, video, whatever. And the second thing that he's did, now this is why he clinches man of the year, is because he set up what's called the Free Speech Union, which was specific, a body set up specifically to defend the right to free speech and defend people from cancellation. And they've actually had a few successes uh, this year already, e- even though, you know, the whole thing has been so inhibited by the lockdown and, you know, they can't do hardly any of the events that they wanted to do. Uh, I'm selling it. I'm not even a member. I should really join. But for that reason, f- for both of the re- those reasons, I would say Toby Young, 2020, man of the year. And it's not even over yet. So that's a good call. Big call. Uh, it's good. I don't see who could. I mean, well, we've got Peter Hitchens, but the thing about Peter is that he's so Peter Hitchens, international listeners, Chris Hitchens' brother, very famous columnist in the UK. He ha- was the first British voice against the lockdown, and he's been very consistent and he's been very brilliant the whole way through, and his writing has been so uh, eviscerating, uh, and really quite profound and there are many scientists who've come forward as well but a lot of them are sort of they're sort of doing what what they're doing peter sort of continued to do uh just who he is he just continued it to write and he was brilliant at it and he has been brilliant and he's more brilliant uh john lee he's he's a really great man who's come through dr john lee the famous uh well now he's famous pathologist he's been brilliant but I just think Toby will clinch it just for the simple fact of the, that he's set up these multiple different bodies uh, and that have really captured the zeitgeist of everything that's going wrong <laughs> with our society at the moment. And at least he's standing up and trying to fight it. Do you think um, that our friend Dr. Reiner Fulmick is going to be successful in his class action? Again, uh, well, uh, um, firstly, I should explain for anyone that's not, fami- not familiar, yeah. there is a, a German gentleman, lawyer, consumer lawyer, Dr. Rainer Fulmick, who's made a presentation on, uh, well, on, I've seen it on YouTube, and then it's been pulled from YouTube, and YouTube's playing whack-a-mole with it, so it, it pops up and then gets suppressed and then gets and pops up somewhere else. But in essence, he's, he's uh, by all accounts, launching a class action suit against, I think, the WHO and others um, for crimes against humanity. On the basis that this is a not a, this is no longer a coronavirus pandemic, if it ever was, but it's now a PCR test pandemic, and that the actions that have been done, including lockdown, now constitute crimes against humanity. Clearly, I want him to succeed, but do you think he can? 
No. Uh, I don't think that governments are remotely fair at all. Uh, and I think, I mean, I think it's great that he's doing it and I wish him every success, but I don't think he will be because the governments have decided this is what's happening and that's that. And there's nothing. So effectively, we no longer have a functioning legal system. No, no, we don't. Um, well, obviously, he's, tr- he's not trying he's to do doing it. He's doing it in the in, 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 uh, United States. In the United States. Well, uh, maybe he might get a better Hearing. look in there, but I, I doubt it. And it's so if I could explain my cynicism, we, we often, there are renewed calls now for Britain to have a written constitution and as, as a justification that to stop such a thing happening again. Like, I just think, why? Like, don't look around the world. Like, lots of these countries have written constitutions. You know, during the height of the Cold War, the, these horrible Eastern European regimes that would sort of torture and disappear people, they had written constitutions. It doesn't mean a thing. You know, it's an, in, it's, it's, it's an interesting question over what the nature of power is. So if you were given ultimate power right now to create what you feel should be the democracy that would take us forward, what would it look like and how would it work? Uh, okay, I, I think that... So if I were just to take Britain, uh, I would take the Swiss canton system put it into Britain, but then re- do the regions uh, reflecting the Anglo-Saxon... This is, this is, this is Dominic's um, uh, wish as this well, is Dominic's isn't it? idea. Dominic, Dominic for his Well, beat. he takes it further because he wants to make Cornwall an independent nation. But I, I think the, the, the thing... So we, we've talked about this and we're in agreement. Whose idea? Thing, was it your idea or was it his idea? Just oh, no, clear. it's his idea. But um, right. there's a very so there's a very small political party called the Time Party, and they they have the similar idea as well, but they call them lands, which I quite like because it's quite cool. It sounds like a sort of fantasy novel. So you split up England into the lands. So yeah, Wessex, Mercia, Northumbria. You know, whatever London could be its own thing. I think Kent probably could. Why not chuck in a couple small ones? Who knows? It might work. That's the beauty of the whole thing. And the great thing about that is that uh, you'd be able. Uh, uh, Britain itself would be foreign affairs and um, and and war. That's it. Uh, nothing else. Streetlights. Yeah, no, all of that. You'd make it local. I think that everyone would have their own NHS, or like, well, not NHS as, as as it happens, but their health system, and even their they'd have their own tax raising powers. Because I actually think that the devolution of London, even though we have a terrible mayor at the moment, has actually been quite a great success because it's brought about lots of cool, interesting things. Uh, like oyster cards, um, like the cycle superhighways, uh, the bike hire scheme, um, the the way that London has been able to pursue foreign direct investment uh, as its own policy, I think has been successful. And I think, you know, even though we have this sort of incompetent arsehole uh, running London at the moment, it's still very much, uh, it, you know, it's such a world city. A friend of mine, who was studying town planning in Canada 10, 10, 11 years ago, said that they were all looking at what London was doing as the most interesting place. Now, I don't think um, 
One of the problems with devolution, though, is it hasn't been very successful in Scotland and Wales. Uh, is Scotland because it's basically just a kind of vehicle, sort of a halfway stage to independence, and it's being treated as such. So it's you know, those ultimate cynical politics are in play. Uh, basically, getting more money than English do, wasting it. And then complaining mm. about it. That's what's going on over there. It's like a country if Twitter like ran a country. It'd be awful. And 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 consequently, some some of the worst COVID policies are, are coming out of there. So their um um their scientific advisor is Debbie Sweetheart. She's one of the worst human beings in the world at the moment. And it's quite a lot of competition. And she's not qualified. Yeah, no, she's really, really bad. And obviously on the BBC all the time, very hasn't got a clue out of her depth. But she kind of just sprouts platitudes that sort of become policy in Scotland for some reason. Um, but going back to the point, I think that even though we have those problems of the devolved Celtic fringe, uh, I think by and large, this idea that you could try new things is really important in government. Uh, so, so that's the way I would go uh, to be able to allow people to. So you could never disband the NHS in Britain. Um, but you might be able to do it if if you split up the country in a smaller. Let's go back to that that word land, and um, you know bring in or, ca- or canton, or canton, or what could, why not call them like kingdoms Count, or, or counties? Counties, yeah. No, we can't have counties because we've already we've already got counties. They have to be a bastion. Maybe that could be quite good. Um, I come from the Bastion of Wessex, for instance. It might be nice. Yeah, it does sound quite good, doesn't yeah. it? It sounds a bit Game of Thrones. It's got to be Game of Thronesy, I think. It's got to, it's got to have that tinge to it. Uh, if you're to create the kind of tradition from, you know, in the 21st century, but yeah, from doing that, we might be able to break open some of the intractable problems, and we'd be able to say to people, you know when we're advocating policies you know look over there like this has worked why don't we try that well this is i'm trying to think who it was i think it's uh one of the neils um he, he advocated which is a historian neil there's neil ferguson that's neil ferguson but the other neil ferguson uh, the, the good the neil good, ferguson good neil ferguson not and not i think neil i think yeah, he, he, I think his, his take is that the, one of the reasons why... This is really fascinating, if I, if I understand his take correctly, that his argument is that one of the reasons why China lost the lead it had when it was once the dominant economy uh, and culture of the world is that in the, in the Middle Ages we had the Renaissance and the way Europe was configured at that time was on a cantonal basis. It was you know, devolved down into you know, lots of competing little fiefdoms. And because that was effectively a bit like a kind of free market economy, you had lots of competition, lots of exchange of ideas and language and culture. And as a result, we, we got all these amazing technologies and we got these, these technology, this technology lead. And then we got the Industrial Revolution, which we started. Um, and it's a fascinating argument. And it, says, and it strongly suggests... Why, why don't we go back to doing the same thing? In other words, that centralized government is just is, is a disaster. Uh, we seem to be living through a, you know, the, the, the absolute proof positive of that. Yeah, as if, as if we're, we're living through a moment when governments are, are trying this, this sort of an attempt. So Dominic also said that Brexit was an example of this massive wave of decentralization that was happening. And I think we're looking back at the kind of 
the revenge of the centralizers. The, the, the revenge of the establishment. Yes, exactly. So if you look in the United States, uh, this has been going on for a while now, but states' rights are sort of constantly being eroded. And, you know, I, I think, was it Obama was sort of infamous for having so many um, executive orders and, you know, really overreaching the power of the executive. And should Biden win, then I think we're going to see that in turbocharged in the form of sort of federal mask mandates, federal lockdowns, all the rest of it, uh, which, which will be a terrible shame because it's by leaving lockdowns to the federal level that we've been able to see that they don't work. So, you know, go figure. You know, you could, you could imagine how they <laughs> can't have that. And yeah, in exactly the same way, you know, the extrication of Britain from the EU, I mean, really clawed, being clawed back in and pulling ourselves out of the whole thing in this incredibly destructive process, which has just wiped out confidence in the democratic, the British democratic system on both sides uh, because of this refusal to, to accept it, is, is this demand to, to centralize. And then if we go on to the online world, uh, you know, where, you know, where it was a kind of Wild West free for all, we're kind of being pushed back into, you know, the biggest uh, website, you know, the, the select number of small, enormous websites, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, all of which are trying to stamp out any kind of dissent w within the platform, you know, by, by having these centralized ideas of terms of use and and, um, and uh, conditions you have to you have to play ball and have to say what is only what is approved if you want to continue using the platform uh, and Amazon again like it's you know the, and the lockdown has just accelerated this centralized control uh, so if, if you can't sorry to interrupt if you can't get if if we can't affect the change we wish to see in the world through the courts, which you say is is unlikely, then the only possible way through is to do it at the ballot box. Yes, and yet, well, I how can I put this? So we all infamously know. That and that, sorry, and just, to, and just to finish that point, that that's a problem because. At the, the the most recent vote to implement lockdown two, five hundred and sixteen MPs voted for, and just thirty or so voted against. So basically, the government the, the government's not fit for purpose, and neither is the opposition. Yes, because we're trapped. Everybody's trapped in this situation. I mean, the idea that the government would have lost that vote is is ludicrous. Because you know, Labour will provide no oppositions at all. And get, what, but do you think the electorate's going to be that forgiving in four years' time? Well, they would. They will if a vaccine comes out. But mm. the problem will be that. But there's enough people that I mean, I don't know the exact figures. Maybe, maybe you have them to hand. But there are probably more people working for the private sector than there are for the public sector. And the private, you know, when I, when I hear all these bullshit, you know, stats from YouGov saying seventy percent of the British population support lockdown, I'm thinking. <sighs> Well, they're they're presumably just asking the question of themselves. So, do I think about? Yeah, I think I think they're probably pro. It's just nonsense. I can't believe it because if your business has been Im impacted, even remotely by this, you cannot possibly support the strategy. 
I know people who've had their business impacted and supported. Really? Yeah. I think, I, I think I, they need their brains examining. The, the questions are leading in those polls. Uh, someone I know is part of the YouGov health community and gets these polls. And um, obviously, you kind of have to think who would be part of that anyway? You know, how would that be reflective? But I do notice, you know, when I sort of get out of Twitter and talk to friends in real life, like a lot of them support. They'll, they'll talk about supporting this, but they'll be perfectly happy to break the rules when it suits them. But, you know, so a good example was I was I was at a wedding in Cornwall a few weeks ago and there was um, more than six people at the wedding and we're all in this farmhouse, 15 of us. And there was a woman there who she she was saying that she liked the masks and she was just going to continue wearing them because it makes her feel safe from now on. And I just thought. This is you're you're so stupid because the masks, like a, don't do anything anyway. But the, the well, they're, they're symbolic. They're symbolic. But the the dangerous bit would have been us all hanging out together in in the farmhouse. That's that's where the transmission, if it would happen, would happen. Not wearing the mask in the street. And then she went on to say that this was worse than the Spanish flu. <laughs> and a lot of people believe this. An- mm. Another mate of mine who, who has a very good job in, in film financing, an educated guy, came at me with the death rate from this virus being 10%. Mm. You know, and so just because we're clued up and, and we have Twitter where we, and we all speak to other cool people, I, I really wouldn't put it past the rest of the country to be fucking bananas about this. Where, you know, where did I, he get that figure of 10% from? Because I mean, presumably you challenged him on it. Oh, yeah. No, he didn't give me where it came from, but he didn't even accept the challenge properly because I, I sort of said, well, look, you know, the hospital fatality rate alone is 1.5 in the country. And, you know, only a small percentage of infections need to go to hospital. And he just took the hospital rate as the one. He said, oh, it's still dangerous. I, I don't know where he got it from. I think, I think more it just kind of breeds into the system and you know i i don't really watch uh mainstream television that much anymore even though i make it <laughs> uh but when i when i get an uber or something and i have the radio on i can i i just hear the adverts and i just think what what it's just rubbish you know it, it's just scaremongering rubbish and then and then the news comes on and you think what you know there's these arrogant journalists who think they know everything and i've worked in sort of the main media organizations i've worked in you know the lobby and, and places like that in my career and i can tell you one thing these political journalists who are somehow driving all of this a lot of them are just arrogant tosses they don't really know much about anything they have an incredibly superficial understanding but they see they consider that because they have this kind of privileged position, they've got to the top of this competitive job that it's their job to tell people what's what. The other problem is they all think they're Woodward and fucking Bernstein when they're just spraffing on about, you know, parlor games in Parliament. And they all think that they have this important role and 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 that they have been selected by the sort of journalism gods to to impart information where in fact they're just a bunch of useless 
groupthink idiots. And they're as responsible as anybody else for pushing us into this hell. And they should all hold their heads in shame for what they've done. And I hope that the image of dead children and dead old ladies haunts their dreams for the rest of their lives. You know, Beth Rigby, Laura Kunzberg, Lewis Goodall, Piers Morgan. Any of these people, they have no idea of the damage they've done. The people who've died because of their idiocy. And I just can't believe how stupid they are. That's definitely a mic drop moment, as uh, as Tim would say. Um, it's amazing that that nobody wants to really go, like you say, below the superficial data. I mean, you think as a when we look at markets and when we're analysing whether to take a position in something or um, or to invest in something, there's a lot of critical thinking that goes into that. And one of the most important things is to consider whether you're wrong. And it doesn't seem to be any of this thinking goes into when when policy gets created or when journalists talk about what's actually happening in the world. And I, 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 I can, as Tim was saying earlier, given what Ofcom have said um, and the directive that's been laid down, it must be difficult for an individual journalist to go against that and still retain their job. Now, I totally agree that there are, there are certain more independent people who could be speaking out that aren't. But, and there's no doubt what you said about them being, certain people being extremely arrogant, condescending, and just factually wrong in things that they tell you, or spinning it in a way that you know is spun to make you scared. But the media is a game of making people scared. I mean, it's like, if you if you turn the media, if you turn the TV on in America... Um, and you live there for a while, it won't be long before you'll be buying buying yourself a handgun and, and like all sorts of security because of the way the media speaks to you. And 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 so peddling fear is not isn't new. Um but it is it is a reason on this occasion to be more angry than most, because there isn't there isn't as we said before, there isn't a political alternative. There isn't a media alternative, or the ones that are there are small, but at least they're getting some some traction. Well, the the media have prevented a political alternative from developing. Yeah. So anything that goes counter is treated like ridicule or ridiculousness, and we're in this bizarre situation where Neil Ferguson, who was the peace, peace, be, peace be upon him, peace be. I, I've, I'm trying to start a movement where he has this. Moniker, so Neil the Filth Ferguson. So he's always he's always well, referred to I'd, as I'd, filth. I'd go with mur- murderous scumbag. Murderous scumbag Neil the Filth Ferguson. Okay, so for those who don't know, Ferguson was the head of the Imperial team that is driving a lot of these figures. And this guy, within the actual science community, is regarded as a nut. You know, he has an abysmal track record. He's a joke, and also. He didn't feel it necessary to um, obey the regulations that he recommended in the first lockdown, where he went to go fuck this other guy's wife. You know, that that was more important to him at that moment in time. Whatever. And he's still advising the government. He's he's still very much the heart of it. And then you have Sinetra Gupta, who is well-recognized, a brilliant writer, very thoughtful. Uh, she, She looks fantastic. Uh, she's uh, you know she's uh, writes these um, novels 
which are apparently very brilliant. Uh, I read her book on just. I read a nonfiction book, Pandemic and the Year. It's a very good record. Uh, wonderful voice when she talks. Oh, it's I could listen to her read the phone book. Just really lovely diction, and uh, just great in every single way. And you have this bizarre situation where she's treated with skepticism by the media, and everything that Ferguson comes out with is treated as as gospel. It's absurd. And there's very few people in the media who are pointing this out. And there, there seems to have been an attack recently as well, coming from what I call like the think tank dweebs, uh, who are very much sort of behind the lockdown. Uh, so people, from, people from sort of free market think tanks. Uh, there was a disgusting article by a prick called Matthew Lesh in Unheard recently, where he he, he smeared um, scientists like Mike Yeadon, who's been on the show. It was, it was a horrible article, but he just it doesn't understand what he's talking about. Really lost, quite confused. He's just basically quite a pathetic individual, really, and just smearing these respectable scientists. I just think, why you should have your head down the toilet? Why you even got your mouth open? Why are you talking about this? Go away. Um, but you know that's the reality of, of what's what's happening. You know, and to go back to your point about the way that the news, um, you know frightens people there's a there's this great song called spent the day in bed by morrissey uh and i've just pulled the lyrics in front of me and the chorus goes uh stop watching the news because the news contrives to frighten you to make you feel small and alone to make you feel that your mind isn't your own yeah i mean what could you add to that uh not much more to add i was just gonna say a couple of things actually just before just before we wrap up one of them was uh, that was a po- beautifully poetic way to finish, but I just would love to to touch upon a point that you mentioned about the vaccine and why you don't think, um, or why you're hoping for a vaccine. There's a lot of uh, debate as to whether that's going to be the end of it or not. And just before you give us your opinion on that, I um, was listening to the Joe Rogan podcast where they were talking about uh, the virus. And the, the the feeling was that most viruses last around 18 months. So if we go into pretty much June, I suppose, next year, it will be over regardless of what happens, regardless of whether there's a vaccine, whether it works or not, and whoever it's given to. So there is an end date, which is at least some cause for, for hope. No, 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 it's not, because the the people pushing the lockdown narrative want this to continue forever. Uh, do, do you really? Yeah. Do you really think? So? You really think so? You yeah, really think... I, I absolutely believe that. Just, just, just have a read of what Google New Normal and see what people say about it. There's, you know, Tom Frieden, former head of the CDC, was like, people have to understand this is years. You know, this is going to go a long time. I mean, uh, to take something like face masks, I can't see how, if if the logic is so, most people there there are some loonies on on Twitter who think that they you know, they're basically the equivalent of a hazmat suit and protective of everything. But if even, okay, even though they're wrong, the more reasonable people in the face mark argument say, even if it just protects just a little bit, it's worth doing. Well, if you're going to take the argument, then millions of people are going to die over the coming decades from respiratory illnesses, just as they always have done. So why not have face masks forever? But there's also, I think there's also a feeling that it, this, the lockdown is good because it sort of constrained the human spirit because fundamentally 
there's a certain political ideology that is bent on on constraining us and and redirecting us in, into what way they choose. And so I think that definitely people want to pursue this. But what I would also say is why I don't think we're over it is because I think it already is over. And I think really what we are seeing is this explosion in PCR testing. And you can look at the correlations of, of cases to deaths, uh, sorry, cases to tests and deaths to tests as well. And it follows completely. If you look at Israel, there's this big drop in COVID cases and deaths. And then there's also this big drop in tests carried out. And that's what we're really seeing. And what I quite like, what I quite like to do would be I'd have a character called Super Face Mask Boy and he'd appear in something like Viz. And it'd be like, oh my God, that building's on fire. Who's going to save us? And then someone says, ah, I, I super face mask boy will, will do it. And he runs in and then gets burnt to death and that's it. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. That, that I think we need that. Yeah, the, the face mask will save us. Yeah. It's, um, like, oh my God, there's a giant meteorite headed towards us. Ah, a super face mask boy will deal with it. Walks out and gets crushed to death by a giant meteorite. <laughs> Viz had, um, they did have a strip called Super God, where mm. exactly the same thing would happen. Like, oh, yeah. And then God would go, well, I'm actually a, non, a non-active God, but I'm, <laughs> I don't actually intervene in, in human affairs. Um, but uh, yeah, so to go back to the thing about the vaccine being the way, I think, so the reason I welcome a vaccine though, because I have mixed feelings on it. So I said this to Mike Yeadon when I had him on my show is that, civilizationally we shouldn't have a vaccine because we need to get out of this problem by ourselves without having the sort of cavalry come and lift us out of it because we need to understand what we've done like what can we have happened? the cavalry go toot can we have the cavalry tooting <laughs> for us <laughs> but, hang on i'm not i'm not sure i follow what you mean by that yes yeah, so let me explain um it's a very odd thing to say so basically the pandemic is over right in my opinion and if we stop mass testing, then we could just go back to living our lives as we are. Okay, and so just before you carry on from there, the counter argument to that is hospitalizations are going up and more people are being put on ventilators. Right, so the counter argument to that is that um, the hospitalization, three quarters of cases have, occur in hospital. Basically, if they're testing everybody in hospital who goes in, Right then, then a certain portion of them are going to have this false positive result, which they don't know what that rate is. By the way, you know it's in- incredibly um, irresponsible. Um, but the, these, so basically, a proportion of everyone who goes into hospital is going to get tested. For, is is going to test positive for COVID because they're pretty much testing everyone. And so, even those people who are say dying of COVID or ventilated or whatever, the symptoms of covid are as long as your arm and as broad as anything their headache their difficulty breathing they're indistinguishable from all of other respiratory bugs and viruses uh, and pneumonia and people always get that so people will effectively i think they're being in hospital it is thought that they have covid and they have something else and the reason that we know that this might be happening is because if you look at the data from the spring and this goes back to your point, by the way, about how it is a serious virus and should should not be diminished and certainly should have been in the, in, in the spring, was that there are very specific profiles of infection to, uh, then to death, the time in between, the gender spread, the age spread. Uh, all that data 
has gone haywire now. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense to each other. So you have a situation where sort of ICU use is sort of falling, but the deaths are rising in hospital. Like what's, what's going on there? That doesn't make sense. And fundamentally, the excess death rate has not been breached you know for 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 you know and if it was then we could say yes there is this nasty bug that's causing this spike in deaths but it's not happening and this has happened before so i would encourage everybody listening to to this to google new hampshire uh whooping cough epidemic now what we had there was this uh, false epidemic a pseudo epidemic blew up in New Hampshire right because uh, somebody had this nasty cough and I was like, oh my god that could sound like um, that could sound like whooping cough because it, it makes this kind of whoop sound when you cough that's why it's called whooping cough and basically they thought right well shit we'll better test you so they did these PCR tests and they found there was, they found this outbreak of whooping cough that was centered in this hospital. And uh, they were terrified about it. It was just happening more and more and more. And they didn't know what was going on. And they were, they were really scared. But whooping cough has a second test, right? It has this sort of bioculture test you can do, which is a, a gold standard, 100% definitely right test, as opposed to the PCR test. And they found that nobody had whooping cough and they thought that thousands did all centered on this hospital and you know there's there's articles in it in there's a wonderful article about it in the um uh new york times from 2007 which was uh it, it says let's see if i can pull it up here uh so okay so here we go the lancet curbing false positives and pseudo epidemics and this whole discussion about this whooping cough epidemic that completely happened, uh, you know, CDC finds pseudo outbreak of whooping cough. Uh, it's, it's all there. You know. Oh, here we go. The New York Times. Faith in quick tests leads to the epidemic that wasn't. Imagine that in the New York Times today. So I would posit, and I have a podcast coming out with uh, Claire Craig who's an extremely impressive uh, pathologist and someone I've got to know a bit, and I think she's absolutely brilliant. And she, talking to her, is like going through, it's like a you know, detective movie or something, and, and we're like uncovering the scene of a crime and seeing what's happened. And I really think that it might be worth thinking the unthinkable and coming to the conclusion that this whole thing has just been, we're chasing a ghost here. And that's not to say that people aren't dying of respiratory illnesses. They absolutely are. That's not to say that this wasn't a very serious disease. It absolutely was. That's not to say that it didn't kill a lot of people. It absolutely did. But, you know, it's, you know, man burns down house trying to swap fly territory is where we are. Do you know that there was a thing in the medieval period where people had the, something called the glass delusion, whereas they believed they were made of glass? And I think there was a French king that had it, and he insisted on being surrounded by cushions because he thought that anything that anything that remotely uh, impacted on him would cause like his 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 limbs to just shatter. 
Oh yeah, that was. Uh, have was you, have you heard of that? Yeah, King King Charles the Tenth or something, or or France who believed in in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, people, you know, society or bits of society do okay. So you just go mad. Yeah, I mean, they had a. I think they had a dancing on this as well. People would just dance until they dropped dead. Charles the Sixth of France. There, so I got it wrong. Yeah, so I mean, we all remember 1997, right? I mean, I I think that was in my life the first sort of period of mass delusion, which was the death of Diana. Oh yes, and of course. I just thought I because I, I I just well, turned... it's it's still live because she's still a story even now. Yeah, she still she could you still put on a final newspaper. I mean, yeah, she she is in the news at the moment, isn't she? For some reason, um, Martin Bashir is yeah. involved. It's a, it's a dreadful BBC, so let's not give it. <laughs> yeah. let's not give it the oxygen of oxygen. Yeah, no. Let's just say she's been dead for twenty three years. Let's let it go. But the 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 interesting thing was how I just turned eleven, and I I just couldn't believe what I was seeing, and I think children have an ability to see through the bullshit that adults lack. You know, obviously, it goes without saying that. The, the emperor's new clothes. The the sort of heroes of that story are the kids who just point out he's not wearing any clothes. And I I was just seeing. I thought, what is going on? Like, what he's setting up books of condolences in supermarkets, and you know. And I was dragged up there. To, I was dragged up to watch the coffin go through London, and I was dragged up the day after it to leave flowers. And it was an absolute ocean of flowers. You know. I, I remember it myself. We I, I badgered my fiance to go and see the cortege go past as it drove through Swiss Cottage. And I remember very, very, you're right, it was absolute freak show. I remember very, very vividly walking up Eaton Avenue to get to the Finchley Road. And everyone was out. It was like, it was a cross between uh, a wake and a picnic. And there were all kinds of families all streaming out to go and see this thing. And I remember some kids up ahead of me in a family you know, within a family, and they were just going into people's gardens and like snatching flowers out of the out of the ground so they could throw them at the car. Uh, uh, eerie, a little <laughs> bit uh, more than a little bit unsettling. That said, and this is not meant to be disrespectful. It also gave rise to one of the finest stand-up routines that Stuart Lee's ever done. Oh yes, uh, I would without without giving it. the game away, but it's an yeah. absolute piece of art. <laughs> it's, it's glorious. It's uh yeah, it's from his two thousand and five show, I think. Yeah, just just Google uh Stuart, Stuart Lee, Lee Princess, Princess Diana. Diana. But I mean I remember at the time there was a big story was a guy a guy took a teddy bear from like, you know, the pile of flowers and stuff that been there. Yeah. He started it's like some tourist or something. And A he was arrested and you, you think sort of why? You know, it, it's a teddy bear's been left on the pavement. Mm. <laughs> you know, where's it gonna go? And uh, and then when he came out of court, somebody absolutely lamped him on live yeah. TV. I remember that. Yeah. Floats came up, and was, we were talking about it for a week. No, remember there was only four channels then, yeah. and there was just no telly. This is before internet, you know, there was no telly for like two or three days. You just think what? So so the question is like. Why do we think that we're not now subject to such delusions? I mean, just just look about, think about it for a second. Go out into the street and just think, where, where's the pandemic exactly? Who mm. who do we know who who's died of it? I mean, I know that people have, but but 
Have anybody close to you? No. Well, the clo- the closest I can cite is a friend of my business partner who's who committed suicide. So there. And it, which may well be in large part attributable to the lockdown. Yes. And it's um I mean and that's that's the cost of of what we're seeing and and certainly mm. like it's certainly put the depression on me. But you know the the question I just think the, these these ridiculous um rituals that we're having to go through like now whenever you go to a pub i mean this is a good one they've got rid of uh bar service so presumably they don't want queuing people queuing at at the at the bar when the pubs were open but now we have to fucking wait around at the door (laughs) instead so just well the one that the the one that really the one that really irritated me beyond measure but it's academic because they've closed them now anyway was that you had to wear a mask from getting in, going in through the front door to seating. But once you sit it down, you could take it off. Yeah. So it's as if there's a particularly virulent strain that just gets you in the, let's say, five to six foot above the ground area. But but basically below four, below four feet off the ground, it's like it's vaporized instantly. You're totally fine. It can't get you. Yeah. And also it can distinguish between uh, whether you've got uh, Jack Daniels in your Coke or not. <laughs> yeah. So they're allowed to sell non-alcoholic drinks, but not sell alcohol. I mean, it's just retarded. It is. And it's, I, I just think it's a, it's a sort of quasi-religious thing, you know. I think it's the same thing I spoke earlier about the festering effect on climate change, uh, Brexit. It's, uh, you know, these are religious acts that people are committing. And maybe it's not a coincidence that we're sort of seeing this in, uh, as religion has declined in the Western world. Mm. You know, the people are trying to find other things to sort of fill that void. That's a really good point. I'm trying to think who it was. I think it might have been Chesterton who was attributed saying... Uh, when people don't stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything. Yes, and people, you know, people do all the time. With, uh, I mean, what's what's the recycling that you do with your rubbish, if not a little ritual? Or is virtue you know? signaling? Yeah, vir- virtue signaling is inherently religious in character because, you know, back back in the the old days, it was always, you know, people. People would go to church to be seen to be going to church. That's what you put on your Sunday best. You know, you wear your best clothes. But isn't isn't there a desire not to be wasteful? I mean, if I I think about the, say you have some aluminium, which is, you know, a a decent metal and you're just going to stick it in the ground. But if you could use that again or glass, then why not recycle it? Well, I would argue that our grandmothers were the ultimate green eco women, right? Because I don't know anything about your grandmothers. Make make do and mend. Make do and mend, exactly. You know, did do you think our grandmothers threw away a glass jar when it was done? No. Nope. No. I no agree. way. No, just yeah. glue it glue it back up again. Well we had milkmen who deliver milk and then they'd take the empty bottles, wouldn't they? And exactly. But yeah. it, but it didn't have this world saving uh virtue attached to it it was just what you did but isn't this what what we do isn't isn't this just like well we could stick it in bin a or we could stick it in bin b let's stick it in bin b and it'll get reused yeah but it's not it's not just seen as a way of oh this will be useful because it will be reused recycling is seen as a way to save the world i well yeah i guess that's Mm, that, I'm that, not against that's... it. I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't recycle. I'm sure it's quite useful to do. Um, I used to. I worked. One of my first jobs was as, as a bin man for a recycling company, um, and 
I, I you know, I learned all sorts of stuff. Like, like I used to think glass would go off to, you know, make more glass when you cycle it. It's not true at all. They grind up and they make bricks out of it. Um, and uh, plastic bottles, you know, AstroTurf, like the kind of fake yeah. pictures, that, that comes from plastic bottles that have been recycled. So, but isn't that yeah. good, though? It is good. I'm not, I'm not saying that these religious acts aren't, aren't, but I, I, aren't good. I would, I would, sorry, I, I would take offence to it being called a religious act because I, I would do it because I think, well, it's not costing me anything to stick it in a, a different bin. And it doesn't take long to do. So it's not a religious act. It's just an act. Blasphemer. <laughs> it's, it's just, not even to defend religion. It's just, it's just like, well, you know, there's a bin there and this is aluminium and stick it in there. Someone can use it. It's like, okay. Maybe I'm being flippant by taking the everyday thing as the religious act. But I do believe that recycling has a religious aspect to it. Because of the I think cycling sold. does. Jogging and cycling do as well. People think they're saving the world. Yeah, I mean, if look at the extinction of <laughs> the joggers, the joggers, the joggers today think they think they're running away from coronavirus and therefore running away from death. You can see it in their eyes. <laughs> you see that? I just, I just had a nice jog before this podcast. It's so beautiful feel, weather. It's lovely oh, weather for a jog. Lovely jog. But my word, you know, it was a tough tough to get my my body moving around that course. I mean, that's another thing we haven't even talked about. It's just sort of the minor health downsides of the lockdown, but I've definitely put on more weight. You know, I definitely am not as active as I was. You know, it's, there was an interesting, something, an article came out today saying that uh, people's step counts have sort of halved since the yeah. lockdown. Well, um, it, and, and we had a guy on um, PD Mangan who is a, um, he, he basically a meat eater. And he's a uh, he's sixty years old in a super super shape. He was really sick um, prior to that, and the doctors in America couldn't find out what was wrong with him. And so he basically worked it out himself and s- stopped eating um, basically anything that that wasn't meat. I think in his main diet, and he works out. Um, he's got his own workout regime. And we asked him at the very early points of the pandemic you know, when nobody really knew what was going on, what he thought people should do. And he, he said, look, sunshine is, your, is linked. The level of sunshine that you get is linked to your, uh, to your health. And so you need to get out. And the fact that people are staying in is a massive mistake to their own health. You need to get out more. On a sunny day in your whatever break you've got, it's just really important to, to get out and get, see the sunshine. Um, and 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 so it's kind of working the other way by people being locked down and staying at home it will make you more ill and yeah. more depressed so you, I, you can't you've just got to get out yeah exactly it, it's such a it's such so there's even within the rules i'm not saying break rules i'm just saying get out go and get some sunshine seriously break the rules break as yeah. many as you can break all yeah. break all of them <laughs> it's a moral duty to it's a moral duty not to wear a mask it's a moral duty to do not them. conform resist uh, the, well that what you said there paul is interesting because there's a great ted talk which everyone should watch which is all about um this this team of people who went to look around the world for the highest concentration of centenarians you know people who reached 100 and they found these three regions of the world. One was this part of Sicily, one was this Japanese island, and the other was this Seventh-day Adventist community in the States. 
and they looked for commonalities. And what they found was, uh, so one commonality was uh, lots of low intensity exercise, right? So uh, you had this whole thing of, um, in Seventh-day Adventism, for instance, it's part of their religion to like go on lots of walks. Uh, in, in Sicily, they had this very sort of rugged terrain. So they'd, they'd always have to sort of go, you know, traverse mountains, just sort of go around to the shops or to sort of see, go to their friend's house. And similar thing in Japan. And the other thing is they all had these um, mantras uh, to sort of eat less. So Seventh-day Adventism, I think uh, vegetarian is built into it. And there's a whole thing of like not eating too much. In, in the Japanese island, they had this whole thing of you only eat until you're two-thirds full. And um, the other one was all of them had this, this reason for getting up in the morning. So they, they all had... Within these communities, there was, a, it was very much to keep people, uh, you know, active and involved in their community. You know, so the Japanese version was, I think they said something about how even the great grandchildren, the, the care is spread equally amongst the great grandparents. So they have this reason to get up in the morning, which is the care for their great grandchildren, or the Seventh Day Adventist, you know, very communitarian uh, life. And I think what what we've done through these lockdowns is the precise opposite of all of that. Yes. So yes. we've taken away we reasons to get up in the morning. We've encouraged people to sit at home, get takeaway deliveries and just eat unhealthy food. We've taken away that constant low intensity exercise. That's so important. And I think that the damage is, is incalculable and it's, you know, and it's it's we've we've taken away the reasons that make life worth living. There was a I saw a similar one or a report. I can't remember where it was now. It was a long time ago, but they said a very similar thing that there's an area in Italy where they have, you know, a high proportion of centenarians, and one of the reasons that they attribute it to is because it's a very densely populated area, um, and the mere act of seeing lots of different faces in a day apparently has a positive impact on your health. So it kind of makes you, it makes you feel better. It makes you feel good. You know, just seeing different people mm. every day makes you feel good. And the, the trouble at the moment is that everybody thinks everyone else is the enemy. And so nobody wants to see anyone, anybody anymore. And oh, so, God, yeah. And that, that's, um, I, 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 to be fair, I think that, that you know, really even, even supporters of it are, are getting pissed off. And, and I'm, seeing, I'm seeing that personally. And I know everybody's got different experiences. But, but like you say, the, the exact things that you should be doing, we're not. And, and we need to be encouraged more to do that for our own health, especially when the weather's not as good when the, the days are darker. I mean, this, this is partly my hope, actually, that it will be that the, the lockdown was embraced in part because the spring was so lovely and sunny. And I'm kind of hoping that a really nasty snap of cold, pissing rain will snap people out of it. Just, just one thing before we, 
before we, uh, if there was anything else that you wanted to say, I'd like to give you an opportunity to say it before we wrap up. But the the question of vaccines, we kind of went off at a bit of a tangent. Oh, and right, yeah. I don't think we 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 actually landed what what you thought about that. So, um, if you if you could just give us your opinion. In yeah. That. So the the point I'm saying is that this is a problem that I don't think. Uh, you know, requires a vaccine to solve. So the fact that we can't get out of it until the vaccine arrives is quite a sad state of affairs. And civilizationally, we have to understand, we have to lift this, us out of this ourselves and understand that we can't just hide away until the vaccine comes and that, you know, life is worth living and we should encourage people to live it and we should give focus protection a try next time something like this comes along. However, if a vaccine comes, my worry is that it will be a vindication of all of these awful policies that have uh, propagated over the last eight months. And when the next one of these comes down, the plan will be in place, right, lockdown again, and we'll have to deal with all of the damage that does again. And we won't really have learned anything and so we'll have been through this horrible experience where the worst people did the worst things uh, in power and crushed the human spirit for a year, right? And the vaccine will be this kind of deus ex machina ending where the characters are just rescued, but no one really learns anything rather than really getting to the heart of it and getting out. However... I do understand that I have to be realistic. Fundamentally, I think it's it's going to be a vaccebo, and you know if it does work, great. It'd be nice to have. What's a vaccebo? I'm sorry, I've never heard that before. Vaccine placebo, presumably. Yeah, I just made it up. Right. Yeah. Okay. And um, I because if the pandemic has passed, then you know, why would we need it? And and my worry is, though, that if we continue mass testing after the vaccine and we still get all these false positives thrown up, then they'll declare, oh, the vaccine doesn't work. And then we'll have to keep locking down. And what, what I've noticed happen as well from my very um, sort of lay person's viewpoint, um, I said to Tim earlier that I was very inspired listening to Barry Norris and um, his views are completely in concord with mine. I thought it was a terrific guest that you had on your show. And, but what I really liked was his, his idea of you just become the world expert in that thing just by reading everything you can, mm. just really delving into it. And I think I've sort of looked at that as well, and I've tried to do it as well. And what I've noticed is that uh, there's pre-existing viruses, there's pre-existing coronaviruses, and epidemiologists and biologists and immunologists all have a pretty good idea of how they work, right? But what's happening now is that in order to justify A, the policy responses, and B, all this bum data that people are getting, they're creating these new bonkers theories about what the, what the virus can do and what it, what it might, you know, to make it seem more dangerous, you know, like, like this idea of asymptomatic and transmission or the fact that we can just get reinfected again, or the fact that herd immunity for this virus could never be achieved and won't exist. Um, but, you, 
because you don't look at the mainstream media, you, you probably won't know that Boris Johnson said we could have 4,000 deaths a day. We could have. We could We could have. Yeah, we could have We could have 50,000 deaths a day or we yeah. could have four. I mean, it's <laughs> like, what a stupid thing to say. It's like, why would you say something like that? And, and like, where, where do people... Where, they pull these numbers out of their yeah. asses. It's like, why would you just say, why 4,000? I mean, it's like, you know, based on what? What, oh. what have you based that on? It's like, incredible. Well, I, I find it remarkable that people don't think to themselves... You know, do, do do we really think with everything that's happened and everything that we are now and all that we've been through, that suddenly this is going to come raging back four times as big as it did in the spring? Are you mental? What the hell are you talking about? You know, do you really think that we're going to get a death rate, which is like double the worst death rate of any country in the world per day? What, what, I mean, what's it's... going on here? Yeah, I mean, it's it's just th- that was that stuff like that Barry Norris was saying that he's not allowed to to look at the TV because he gets angry, and I, I I now try very hard not to because it's stuff like that where I just hear fear mongering for the sake of it. You yeah, know, e- even if they're trying to get a point across, okay, you're trying to justify a lockdown. We are locking down. Whatever you might say, don't chuck numbers like that around because that's fear mongering. Okay, that is just, it's absolute fear-mongering. You don't, you don't know what the numbers are going to be. We're going to find out what the numbers are going to be. We're, you, you say we're putting in place policies to prevent excess deaths, so let's see if it works. And you don't need to scare people any more than that. So that, that's where I get annoyed that they go overboard in saying things like that. And using, using fear as a tool to control your population is, I think, playing with fire. And you don't even know what the consequences of that could be. And they could, you know, I, um, Emma Kenny, who was a, uh, she was like the sort of TV psychiatrist from This Morning, the morning show. Uh, she, she's been doing a lot of great work on mental health during this crisis and has very much come up as a fire breathing lockdown skeptic. So she's completely on the side of the angels. But, uh, she she was saying things about children terrified of, of getting infected and, and running around worried that, you know, if they touch something or someone that they're going to get this deadly disease. And I just think to, you know, Matt Hancock, when he sort of gets out there and says, you know, don't kill granny. I, I just think, what, why, why, who the, who the fuck are you to sort of open the bonnet on our children's minds and start poking around? You know who the fuck are you, you prick? You know, just this, 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 this edit's going to have to get heavily uh, redacted, Paul. I think <laughs> <laughs> just, just a touch. Is it? Sorry, is is no, are no, no, words fine. allowed? Because yes, I, oh, yes, great. free speech union. Great. Yeah, yeah, I, no, no, we will, we will have to bleep them though. No, 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 they won't be bleep. Because I'm, okay. I, I don't, I'm not a normal. I try to swear less, but I feel that in this. This topic sort of brings up. It's warranted. It's absolutely warranted. It's absolutely fine to swear. I mean, all we would do, all we do, is we have an explicit rating on it. And oh yes, I made your podcast explicit. No, well, actually, Tim did that quite a long time ago. <laughs> so, it's, it's, uh, we, we, we it's had a clean, clean raising for quite a long time. Then Tim then, then smashed the right finally, through it. The dam finally broke. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, um, we well, you know they've got a cuss count on. Um, 
on Jeff Norcott's show. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah. So that's a guy called David Domain that has, okay, so this week we had 16 fucks, we had 68 <laughs> fuckers, we had, we had two cunts, uh, and a wanker, and, and a shat. Listen to the Rory Sutherland episode. He's, the way he swears is just pure poetry. It's just uh, fantastic. It's, it's like having angels dancing in the It is just brilliant. It really is. And then, and then saying, fuck off. He's, and there's, he's, there's he's a really link between man. swearing and intelligence, isn't there? Apparently, yes, swear. yes. Is it? If, if you swear, swear you're swear fucking intelligent. Yes, exactly. It's. I. I feel that swearing should be reserved for those people who are big and clever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is big and it is fucking clever. It, it should be. It should be. It should also reserved for like when when you know people really deserve it. Yeah. You know, they, yeah. They, the, it, we shouldn't diminish. So, like, no problem was worthy of swearing about until 2020, and that, now we can all yeah. that. And now the de- the now all, you know all bets are all off. All the, the cunts, uh, the pa- shittings, Pandora's, the arses, Pandora's box all of, has yes. well and truly been exploded open. Just absolutely so, so blue language. The thing is, with um, the fact that you're a new dad, and as you grow up, you, you for the as your kid grows up for the next few years, you might be changing a few words like you know <laughs> shit to sugar and whatever it might be but when you when your kid gets to the age where they really understand what you're saying i realize that the more you swear the more your kids think it's not cool because it's mm. like oh, i love that i love that counter logic yeah sometimes it does you know it's 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 why they call it a curse like you have to oh you know curse the world for inconvenience you in that in that moment but it's strange isn't it it's strange the the, the shibboleth power of 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 swearing because you know for a while it hasn't bothered me but i i i i have to watch myself when i'm with my parents because they they don't like it the the worst thing that we, is it okay if we segue on to media picks yeah yeah yeah, yeah absolutely because 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 that takes us effortlessly to my 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 Tim, main that anecdote, was smooth which, man that was smooth thank you very much it's like you know handbrake turn uh, <laughs> And uh, I, I, I get very uncomfortable swearing in front of my parents, as I'm sure they do when I when I do it to them. And but you don't um, mind watching so, porn together. That's that's fine. But no, that's all right. That's all right. <laughs> well, Asian a, Asian badonkadonks is a different category of you know aesthetic altogether. Um, anyway, so my whole big thing uh, recollection is my sister had a summer job at W H Smith. Remember that, Granddad? <laughs> yes. And uh, so we had a Ferguson Video Star front loader. Uh, video recorder back in the days. I'm thinking I'm probably channeling about 1981, maybe 1982. And that and was when getting a video from the video shop, you had to put just, down you had to put down 150 pounds as a deposit, and that was a wow. fuck of a lot of money. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah. And um, so anyhow, she she brought she was going out with a guy from the video counter, and so she brought back sort of illicit video goods for us. And the very first video I ever saw at home was the Blues Brothers. Oh, wow. And I'm thinking, what a way to start, eh? It's only downhill all the way once you've seen a film like that. But the problem was that because the language was a little bit salty, my mum walked out after five minutes, so it kind of spoiled the vibe. But uh, never, nevertheless, uh, it's, it's a cracking film, and, uh, and I endorse it heartily. Excellent. <laughs> Alex? My, my proper film recommendation this week is oh. a film called A Futile and Stupid Gesture. And... I was kind of a bit too young to get the whole uh, Animal House, Caddyshack thing first time around because um, I'm, I'm a creature of 
basically a child of the 70s. So I missed some of this stuff, the adult sort of adult type stuff at the time. But I caught up for it fairly soon afterwards on video. But A Few Times a Stupid Gesture has Will Fort or Will Forte as the lead. And it's basically the story of a guy called Doug Kenny. And Doug Kenny is basically the guy who ran the magazine National Lampoon. So when National Lampoon then made Animal House, it made him into a bit of a celebrity. And he, he was the writer rather than an actor, but he has a, a bit part in the film. So it takes you through the history of National Lampoon and done in a very kind of face, uh, social network type way. So very sort of knowing nod to the, the social network well, well, in it, during this film. Uh, and then it takes you through the making of Animal House and it takes you through the making of Caddyshack. These are all cult films. Animal House, I, I was amazed to hear this. Animal House, when it came out, was the most successful comedy ever made. Wow. Most successful comedy, most successful comedy in the history of yeah. Hollywood. Amazing. Wow. So, and then I think shortly after that, they, then came Airplane, and they just blew the whole Overton window of comedy wide open. So it was never quite the same, you know, afterwards. Mm. But it's just it's just a pleasure to watch. You've got all these people doing cameo impressions of other people like Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd, and you know, all, all of these, all of these, you know, complete legends of the seventies and eighties. So. Uh, it's. Yeah, I think it's. Un, uh, it's been underappreciated. Uh, it only has a meta score of fifty-five, a uh, slightly higher IMDb rating of six point eight. Um, that might reflect the fact that it's a little, a little bit patchy here and there. But basically, it's a, it's, it's a solid comedy. And God, it's not like we don't need something to laugh at at the moment. So I'd recommend this to anybody, particularly those of us of a certain vintage, who, um, you know, who, who had to see Animal House when it was on video. A few times, a stupid gesture, and it came out twenty eighteen. Brilliant. Oh, it's great. I'm going to watch that tonight, I think. So on, I, th- I think it's on Netflix. Alex, right. um, do you have... Yeah, you have... I'll, I'll give you a couple. Um doesn't have to be a film. It can be anything. Yeah. It can be a particularly juicy swear word, if you like. Yeah, I'd like to say bollocks. No. Um, I I would recommend a couple of things. So everyone's talking about it. Everybody's watched it. But The Queen's Gambit on Netflix. I really haven't really, seen that yet. really good. I yeah. really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's... um. I didn't think that I'd really get sucked into this girly chess drama, but that's exactly what it is. Um, so it's basically it's a dramatization of a novel about a dis- female chess prodigy who begins her you know, her life as an orphan and uh, goes on to in, into the world of chess, basically through through very humble beginnings. But um, it's just very well made, completely gripping. And they somehow make chess matches exciting, and uh, that's for me as a as a filmmaker myself. I find one of the ultimate challenges in being a filmmaker is if you can make something that's not very interesting exciting, uh, then then you've really hit the jackpot. Um, the other thing I would recommend was this mad little film that I caught on. Um, I've got the movie subscription in MUBI, which sort of has arty films. And um, I was about to cancel it because I wasn't watching it as much. So I thought I'd just, I made up my mind I'd watch one to see if it was worth keeping the subscription. And I realized I've been a very naughty uh, filmmaker because I haven't been keeping up with my arty films. And I should have been because this was fantastic. It's called Wake in Fright. And it's an Australian film from 1960, it's 1971. And it's based on a novel uh, about uh, it's about this school teacher who he he teaches in this schoolhouse in a sort of three three building township in the middle of bumfuck nowhere bush Australia, 
So he's completely in the searing sort of desert. And he's got to the end of term and he he decides to uh, head off to Sydney where there's a girl waiting for him. So he takes the, he hops on the train, which just kind of stops at barely, the the uh, the train station is basically like a raised platform and that's it, and nothing all around it. Hops on the train and gets to the nearest sort of town, which is this mining town. And he, in, rather than just staying there for, for one night and then, you know, ca- getting a flight to Sydney to see this girl, he just gets dragged into sort of debauchery and hell and awfulness and drinking of this town, which sort of takes him over and he just can't really get out. And, you know, he in the first night, he ends up gambling away all his money. So he's stuck there. Uh, there's, a, there's a wonderful bit where he thinks he can get out, but he can't. And it's a truly harrowing uh, kangaroo hunting scene uh, where sort of he gets dragged on this kangaroo hub with these kind of drunken guys. And it's it's really quite um, quite bloody. It's it's sort of not for the faint of heart. Uh, it's it's a very and it has this constant, you know, underlying sort of horrible oppression. And there's this wonderful thing of every time someone wakes up in the film, you can really feel how hungover they are, and and uh, you know the horrible oppressive heat beating down on them. And I, I have a long-standing fascination with Australia. And so I love films that sort of really get inside it. And this was, um, it really, it really uh, knocked me back. I've just, I've got the, the poster in front of me here with the tagline. So it was originally, it says, says, wake in fright, have a drink, mate. Have a fight, mate. Have a taste of dust and sweat, mate. There's nothing else out here. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent stuff. They're, they're brilliant. Um, if you like, do you actually play chess yourself? Um, no, I, I used to play Go, oh. uh, which um, I really loved, actually. So, But yeah, may, maybe I should have played more chess. There's a fantastic documentary called about AlphaGo. Um, Got to see that. It's absolutely brilliant. I think, Tim, you recommended it, didn't you? Yeah, well, I think well, one one of us recommended it to the other. Yeah, it's that's excellent. You've got to see. It's very, very watchable. Oh, great. To, talk about making um, what you might consider to be a very sort of dry subject absolutely gripping in every way. Um, so it's basically this 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 team of uh, computer sort of hacks with this Go expert against this this young boy, you know, who just had his dad helping him. And so it's an epic David and Goliath battle and it's just utterly brilliant. So I would definitely see that if you get the chance. Um, so mine, I would also recommend in dispatches, the porn sacrifice, which is with Toby Maguire. And it's about, Oh, right. Um, okay. Bobby Fisher. Um, oh yeah, that is good. I obviously, yes, that's good. That's, that's very good. That was that I particularly like, but my, mine's going to be for this week. Um, I'm going to, uh, recommend a Veritasium uh, YouTube video, which is a sciencey type YouTube channel, which um, has they always come up with these interesting things. But this this one is particularly interesting because for me, I love the idea of science that, and it comes back to what we're talking about with with the virus, where we think things are settled and that they're, they're not, and 
this particular um, YouTube video is about why the speed of light is unmeasurable. And we always think we know what the speed of light is and we do know what the speed of light is, but actually it's not. It's not. The, the speed of light is measured by measuring it um, in the two-way speed of light, not the single-way speed of light. And what we mean by that is in order to measure the speed of light, you have to send a beam onto a mirror and it travels twice the distance and we, we divide that by two to find the speed of light. But we don't know whether the speed of light in one direction is different to the speed of light in the other. And that's, we can't prove it. And there's no way to prove it at the moment. And so it's, it's utterly fascinating. And at the moment, we can't solve the problem. So even something like what is the speed of light that we hold to be something that we, we've already solved, actually, we haven't at all. So I find it interesting for that reason. Perhaps it's just me, but that's my recommendation for this week. So what, what was that called again? Um, the YouTube channel is Veritasium. Right. And it's, um, it was, this particular video was put out a week ago and it's already got 2.6 million views. It says, why the speed of light is unmeasurable. Wow. Okay. That sounds really, really good. I um, mean, all, all of theirs, is, to be fair, are really good. There's always some really interesting stuff. I mean, it depends. I, maybe I just think I find that interesting. But this one, I think, most people would find interesting because it is literally talking about something we take for granted and something we, we think we've solved. But when you see why we can't measure it in one way, it becomes so fascinating because if you know, if you know anything about the theory of relativity, you know that, that time travels at different speeds in different places. So the time at the top of a mountain is different to the time at the bottom of a mountain. And when you move at a certain speed, the time that you're experiencing is slightly different to the time that somebody else is experiencing when they're not moving, which is why you have that classic, you know, men go off into space in films and then come back and, you know, everything's changed because it's, you know, 2500 or whatever, um, because time's travelled in a different, a different uh, range. They use that, they use so, that in the Alien films. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Uh, and it is based on real, real science. I mean, that is that is true. So, um, so yeah. So that's that. So, Alex, look, it's been absolutely fantastic having you on. How do people follow you? And do they creep up behind you, about- or do they um, lurk at a distance? <laughs> yes, they do creep up. Not if I can catch them first. <laughs> what's your Twitter handle? What's your What's your website? And what's your podcast? Give those a plug. Right, so my Twitter handle is Alex Macaroon, um, and that's spelled Alex M A C C A R O O N. And my podcast is called Escape from Lockdown, um, and that is available on all good podcast channels. And um, uh, at the moment, I'm doing various things. I'm helping out uh, Unlocked, which is another great channel uh, hosted by Martin Daubney and Belinda Lucy, uh, formerly of the Brexit Party. And so they're, they're doing a lot of good work there as well, which I'm really glad to be involved with. So also uh, subscribe to that. Um, I think there's two, two live shows a week at the moment, and they plans to do even more than that so brilliant all very exciting all very good so um yeah thanks very much guys i've I've really really enjoyed it uh i sort of joked at the beginning um about being a long time listener first time caller but it is true i I have really enjoyed the podcast and 
you know, even even the ones that are more financy, I, I still really like. Um, and it's you know, it's it's always a, a real treat. So thanks for having. Thanks me very on. much. It's been a pleasure on our side as well. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Excellent. Very much appreciated. Great stuff. All the best. Good luck. Take care then. Ciao. Bye. Bye bye. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.